Welcome to the Driven by Prevention podcast by the Merck Animal Health Swine Team. Merck Animal Health is proud to be your invested partner in the industry and is focused on solving your swine disease and reproductive challenges for better business and improved animal welfare, productivity, opportunity, partnership, wellness, all driven by prevention. Welcome to today's National Hog Farmer Science Talks webinar series, brought to you by Merck Animal Health. I'm Kevin Schultz, National Hog Farmer Senior Staff Writer, and I'll be your moderator today for the webinar that focuses on breeding herd considerations to help your farm manage through seasonal infertility challenges. Today's panel we have, uh, first, Tim Safransky, uh, since January of 1996, Dr. Safransky has been the state swine breeding specialist at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Next to him is uh, Fred Kaur. His current role is production supervisor for Dykeis Farms in Michigan. And finally, Rob Knox is a professor in the Department of Animal Sciences at the University of Illinois. And since we're talking uh, seasonal infertility, uh, why don't we start off with each of you, uh, what is your definition of seasonal infertility and what does it mean to you and uh, open it up for our readership, our listenership? So when we think of seasonal infertility, um, I'd say it's really seasonal reduced fertility. And typically what we see is um, delayed estrus in gilts, irregular estrus cycle or delayed puberty in gilts, irregular estrus cycles, weak estrus cycles. Um, in the sows, we'll see delayed uh, weaned estrus interval, um, lower conception rates, may see some abortions, there's those sorts of things. And um, there's components into it. Um, there's really good evidence about elevated temperatures, and there's some evidence as well with photo period. And then there's the other factors associated with seasonal feed quality, summer vacations, and things that are a lot more difficult to quantify. I'm in 100% agreement with uh, with him. It, again, it's it's reduction of of uh, numbers and and lower conception rates, right? You know, is a bigger driver, but you know, lower intakes uh, on the feed, which is lower nutrition. Uh, I I believe is a big player in that is because that's heat driven, all the deals that go with it. Uh, I th I think uh, everybody experiences this, and I've had the opportunity to go different places around the world where they experience same seasonal infertility measures that uh, Tim mentioned, and some of those areas are very northern hemisphere where photo period, not heat stress, mm -hmm. and in other places are very tropical and where they get uh, heat stress levels that we wouldn't even experience here but not the photo period. So I think we get a, probably a combination of the two where we get very long days in summer and we get a combination of, of the high temperature and elevated humidity as well. Okay, and Rob, you kind of alluded to this just now. Uh, what time of year are far farms most affected? And it may depend on their geography. Yeah, I think, um, uh, well, that's a great question. And uh, I guess I'm more familiar with uh, Midwest. Uh, I know the Southeast probably gets more of these problems throughout the year. But uh, I, I think in, at least in the Midwest and even in the Southwest, we see the problems basically starting somewhere in mid-July 
running pretty severely through at least the end of August or the first two weeks of September. Um, you know, from I've not been in the southern part of the United States, but in from Midwest North, and I even seen this up in uh, in in Michigan. And for me, it's week twenty five through week forty. Um, week forty's a magic number for some reason. Doesn't doesn't seem to matter where I've been, Colorado, uh, wherever. Week forty, everything comes back online. Yeah, I always like getting called to solve reproductive problems in first of <laughs> September. And I go out to the farm, and no matter what I tell them to do, it's going to get better really soon. Okay, yep. Rob, and uh, anyone else can chime in as you feel. Uh, but can you break down the basic physiological uh, repro cycle that our females are going through? Sure. Uh, so the way we look at the, the ester cycle of the pig is on average uh, 21 days, 3 weeks. That's the way we calculate it. Um, and normal would be anywhere from 19 to probably 23 days. That's what we would expect. So things that would not be in that 21-day category are not necessarily terrible or abnormal. It's just just a little bit of no, normal variation. We expect the animals to show us or express a two-day standing asterisk. Um, and... The way we we look at the reproductive or the astro cycle of the pig is there is a, approximately a five to seven day follicular phase, and during this period of time, animals are growing follicles, and we have hormones, uh, FSH or LH, that are actually driving medium to small follicles to large and ovulatory size. When these follicles reach this large ovulatory size on the ovaries. Uh, animals typically express estrus. The hormones that are being produced by these follicles is estrogen. And estrogen is that hormone that induces the standing response, the vulva swelling, the interest in the bore, uh, the behaviors uh, that, <coughs> that indicate that these animals are fertile. Um, after they express estrus, probably within about a day or so, they'll ovulate those follicles and the estrogen will decline, and so we won't see uh, high, uh, high vulva swelling anymore. And what will happen on the ovaries is those, all of those follicles that ovulated, so let's assume that there's 20 of them, 20 follicles that ovulated at estrus. That is the maximum number of eggs that were ovulated. So <clears throat> if the animal's inseminated, her maximum litter size is 20. If she only ovulates 10, her maximum litter size is 10. So we want animals that are in good nutrition, that have a high ovulation rate. Uh, somewhere around 18 is normal for gilts, probably 20 to 24 for sows. And um, those animals will, after those follicles ovulate, they'll form what's known as corporal lutea. And each of those 18 to 20 structures that ovulated will now form a corpus luteum, which will produce progesterone and that particular hormone will remain elevated. That's important because that is the structure of pregnancy, progestation, progesterone. <clears throat> and that will allow the conceptuses to develop and stay viable for 115 days until they're born. So in, in non-bred animals, the, structure, the progesterone structures uh, form, 
progesterone is elevated for about two weeks and then they decline when they're not pregnant. So this animal begins to cycle two weeks of high progesterone, one week of not, and that's their, their three-week cycle. Mm-hmm. The same sort of a relationship exists from weaning. When the piglets are weaned, they will start a follicular phase, and that typically takes a little bit less than a week in weaned sows. And then they're very, if they're not bred, they'll cycle at 21-day intervals, and if they are bred, they'll gestate for the 114-115 days. Now, you say that with a mature sow, there is potential for 24 piglets. Uh, there are 24 embryos, okay. but the uterus does not have the capacity. So it's, it's very possible that we would see a very, very high fertilization rate, almost 100%. So if sperm is put in there and, and a sow is ovulating 24, <clears throat> she might have 24, 23 fertilized eggs. But she will, she does not, most sows don't have a capacity. So that's the limiting 20. factor is the uterine, uterine size. That's there's, right. there's other limitations as well, though. There's some just kind of genetic mutations and things in those that are embryonic lethal. And so in most of our farm animal species, we expect about a 30% embryo mortality prior to kind of completion of placental development. And so in cattle, if they can get a 60% pregnancy rate, to a single mating, they're actually doing pretty well. In pigs, if we're not hitting 90%, we're starting to question what's going on. Right. A lot of, right? so, and I, so I tell our students that are largely cattle background, if they're livestock, that's because they're underachievers. But the truth is, the biology of the cow does not lend itself to a 90% pregnancy rate, whereas with pigs it will. What changes may be occurring uh, in both the gilt and the boar during the summer that can uh, you know, maybe not result in infertility, but decreased fertility. So part of it's how they cope with the elevated temperatures. And so, you know, a pig, a pig in the wild is going to look for shade, and it's going to look for water or mud. And when we put them in a barn, um, they can only seek the environment that's within wherever the space that they have. And so we typically have evaporative cooling cells, may have drippers, maybe have misters, but whatever we have, um, if, it's not, if it's not keeping them within what we call their thermal neutral zone, so they, they don't have to expend energy to maintain homeothermy or maintain a constant body temperature, um, then there's only so much they can do. And some of that behavioral seeking the cooler uh, may not be an option, and so they're going to lay down a lot. They're gonna, not going to stand. They're going to either lay or sit. Um, and sometimes you're trying to get that coolness off of the concrete floor. Um, they're going to eat less feed because feed, um, when it's digested, creates heat, heat of metabolism. And so they're trying to reduce heat. Um, they're going to shunt blood to the surface. And so if we measure skin temperature, um, it actually goes up. And if we measure rectal temperature, when it goes up, then she's under heat stress. So the skin temperature goes up first. Um, and then they're going to pant. And the, the respiration, the, the evaporation of water through respiration is their they're kind of final major cooling mechanism. Mm-hmm. Of course, they want to drink more. I think, uh, I mean, Tim made me think about the environment. And from a seasonal standpoint, we can't quite tell exactly what is, how, how are these animals sensing photo period inside a confinement building? I think that's always been a dilemma. But what are the things that people can do? 
what they can do is they can, can control the duration of lighting and the intensity of lighting. And I think one of the things that I've seen is within barns, even in the summer and in winter, there is tremendous temperature and lighting variation at pig level throughout a single enclosed structure. So where the temperature and the lighting systems are all set to one, all the animals are not getting that. So I, I do think there's an opportunity for producers to zero in on their, their fo animals of focus. So maybe if the gestation animals are not a focus, but the pubertal gilts or the wean sows are, you could change lighting and you can change, you can put animals near cool cells if you choose. Uh, you can do temperature regulations. You can, there are, are things that you can do even in a hot environment because they don't, Location near a cool cell would certainly be a few degrees cooler, and location where the lighting or enhanced lighting is is added is possible. Mm -hmm. One would think now that with the majority of our hogs in the U.S. now in confinement systems, there shouldn't be a seasonality issue with temperature. But some of the considerations that you were just alluding to of management and again it gets back to management knowing what your pigs need when they need it can we offset some of these seasonal reduced fertility issues we think we can <laughs> I, uh, I I believe we've 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 seen it where we've moved it a little bit but um, that bounce or that infertility seems to continue to be there right? um, Somebody's going to be a rich man when they figure out how to make that go away, but we haven't found it yet. So what I, what I always tell people is the way to make it go away is you do everything right every day. And that's easy to say. <laughs> and there's just very few farms that can get everything done right every day. And that's the challenge. It doesn't take very big of a slip. And so, yes, they're in confined barns, majority. Yes, those barns are cooled. But the south farms are not air-conditioned. So it, it's still going to be warm. It can still get above the thermal neutral zone. And, you know, the sow, if she were 60 or 65 degrees, that's pretty comfortable for her. And if our barns are 80, that's, that's a pretty good gap between. They're still a lot better than being in the 95-degree outside temperature. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then the other issue I alluded to in my definition, we get into late summer. Um, if you have corn that you'd rather not feed, you probably didn't feed it first. And so... You know, come September, new harvest and fresh corn, that's something that you know, the growing pig people, which I don't work much with the growing pigs, but, you know, growth rate goes up. You look at slaughter numbers and slaughter weights. That's an impact on the breeding herd as well. Mm -hmm. In the breeding females, there are, there are uh, risk factors at least. Mm -hmm. Parity one, first parity, first litter of females are the most susceptible in these uh, weeks that we were talking about. If you, if you look down by parity breakdown of reproductive failure, it would be these younger parity females. So there's some, com there's some nutritional aspect interacting with this seasonal infertility as well. And I think it's an opportunity for people to at least focus on who are the risk animals. You might be able to kind of add your risks up, short lactation length, lower parity, hot seasons, and a look to where you want to focus some of your efforts as well. Yeah, so our parity one female has heat associated with breathing and her heart beating and everything else, fetal production, but also with her growth. She's still growing. And the metabolism of muscle growth and skeletal growth produces heat. And so 
she is more susceptible. And so, yeah, how do you do that? Well, maybe the guilt just need to be at the cool cell end of the barn because they are the most susceptible to heat stress. And, and these, these take kind of coordinated planning and in, in advance planning. It's not something you can do. Mm -hmm. Now, I would think the more mature sows, mm -hmm. the multi-parity sows, would be the ones more affected mm -hmm. but because of the metabolism that the gilts have going, are growing, they're the ones actually more at risk. The gilts are producing heat. Right. In addition to the environmental heat that they're exposed to, they're producing heat. And so if, if the mature animal, if, they're, if at maturity this animal's bigger and this one's smaller, the bigger one is more susceptible to the heat stress. But when that smaller one is still growing, she's producing body heat that she also has to dissipate. Mm -hmm. and, and it becomes a bigger challenge for her. Okay. So certainly I think with the, with the, even with the bigger females, making sure that if they're in gestation stalls, they can't be, so that way they can't separate out their body contact because they need the ability to be able to stretch out on these cool concrete floors mm -hmm. and have air movement. And so sometimes when you see probably very late parity sows that maybe should have been removed that they're almost too big or pen densities, which we talked about before. These animals, in the hotter the environment, they need more space to dissipate body heat as well. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I like to tell folks is whatever your cooling system is, just make sure it works. And so if you have cool cells, which is the air is coming in through a, a pad that, with water dripping off of it, it cools the air by evaporating water. Okay? If there's no water on it, it's just blowing in external air. If you have drippers, it's dripping and it's supposed to evaporate from her skin. The water is not what's cooling her, it's evaporation. If the dripper is plugged up, which in Missouri we have a lot of hard water, it's plugged up with calcium, um, it's not dripping, there's no cooling. If it's misters, and again, it's not creating a wet floor, it's the idea to wet her skin. And so the timing of how long is it on and how long is it off such that she gets moist in the evaporation. You know, whatever it is that you have, you just need to make sure it's working. Mm -hmm. And the cool cell, like you said, it's on one end of the barn, mm -hmm. and so you want to put your more susceptible yeah. breeding animals closer right. to that. Cause it gains heat as it goes across pigs, and from one end to the other, you can have a three to five degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature. So, and so what's, what's the best cooling system? Well, I can argue for anything, but the, the cool cell cools the air. And so it increases the humidity, but it does make it more comfortable. And so people working in the barn benefit from the cool cell versus drippers or misters. And the other thing is that when it doesn't work, they notice it faster mm. because they're hot as well. And you said three to five degree difference as it goes. Doesn't sound like much, but that can be. Yeah. Go into your, go into your air conditioning in the house in the summertime and crank it up five degrees, and you can tell. Mm -hmm. And sows and gilts can as yeah. well. Yeah. Now we get the question, uh, how can I get my gilts to cycle better, especially in the summer? Suggestions for management to, to overcome that challenge? For me, I mean, one, do everything right. Get them, get them to the right uh, square footage, uh, get the right nutrition in front of them, make sure they got good water, um, but get good boar exposure. 
right? And, and, I, and I mean that by quality boars, right? You know, not just boars. I mean, boars that have uh, had a chance to breed some sows, they're, they're, um, they're uh, aggressive and, and not mean aggressive, but uh, aggressive for, for looking for gills that are in heat. Um, get enough time, right? You know, so um, I'm, I'm still at the two minutes per, per gilt, but in a whole pen, you might be there a half an hour, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, so um, time, quality, quality bore exposure, and make sure you get all, everything right. And I think um, admitting when there's gilts that need to go. So if we start bore exposure, and we've gone for 25 or 30 days, and we have gilts. If we've done everything that Fred's saying, and we have gilts that still haven't cycled, um, we can probably eventually get them to cycle if we just keep going. But our gilt pool starts to grow. And so one of the things that, that I think is fairly common, we'll have our prescribed time if we do a good job with bore exposure, and then that, that group of gilts that has not expressed estrus can get a shot of something like PG-600, which should induce uh, follicles and estrus um, in gilts that are capable of cycling. So then if, if in a week they haven't responded to that, they're probably not worth keeping. And those are the sows that are going to have long weaned estrus interval and, and other ascendriate reproductive problems. Yeah, there's been some, there's been, uh, some approaches taken where uh, we talked about uh, what, what age do you start for exposure and should you change the intensity. So when, when those decisions have been made and you're moving along and at at some particular point in time you've you've got a residual group of animals that have not given you any sort of a symptom and uh, some folks have gone in at a two two week period after no response and others have gone in with a three four or even six week so kind of a cleanup and you can use a PG 600 um, to induce a follicular phase and from that intramuscular injection you can wind up getting anywhere from 70 to probably 80% of the females to express estrus within about a four to five day period of time after the injection. And so while originally we would say you get PG-600, you don't breed at the induced estrus, you breed 21 days after the induced. Typically in those gilts, we're gonna breed at that induced estrus. It's my experience, Fred, I don't know if you no, do I, that. Yeah, that's, so what I'm used to doing anyhow is, so will he check up to um, 210 days? At 210 days, who's ever left in that group that, that looks like a viable, breedable gilt will go ahead and get loaded into a crate, mm-hmm. either PG-600 or, or, or whatever that farm decides. But then at 21 days after she's been in that crate, probably 25 days, right? Make sure you give him plenty of time. That's when we make the decision, is she going away or not? Which is somewhat of a hard decision sometimes because you got all the money tied up in her, right? But um, if she stays and you crowd the system and, and don't let the next group come through, you're going to cost yourself more money. But if you take those tail ender gills, they've not responded, and, and whatever that length of time is, uh, you might need to decide on that specific farm. But if I have three pens of gilts, and if as they've come in heat, I've moved them toward toward the breeding area, now I have partial pens. And if I mix them together, the acute stress associated with that, they will fight to start to reestablish the social order. And that can actually induce a lot of them as well. There is a, there is a, a risk for waiting 
for anim waiting for animals for extended period of time to so give them PG 600, there is a possibility that these gills have already cycled, and which in which case you're giving PG 600 to an animal that's already has structures on her ovary, and so the PG 600 will not do anything to induce her. So on the opposite side, there is at least an argument for being a proactive approach for induction before they get too old. Um, and that's why I mentioned that a two or three week, they're much less likely to have ovulated and be cyclic uh, from when we started bore exposure. Let's say it's at 170 or 180. They're very likely to have snuck in and become pubertal before 200 days of age. And so early or proactive use of PG-600 would at least be, in my mind, you would get more from that rather than waiting until there are 220, 230 days of age where you're already dealing with a, a delayed guilt. Now you mentioned PG-600 a number of times here. Are there other interventions that producers can use that would in, impact uh, guilt and cell cycling? None in this, uh, there's very few there's very few hormone components that are available, so no other country even have any other magical components to to do what what this one can. So your only options are bore exposure, different levels of bore exposure, regroup some form of uh, minor stress. I guess I'll say regrouping and relocation. And and while I say that. I think perhaps that could be one issue is as people put out on some level of stress, uh, let's assume that boar exposure is a positive stress, but the regrouping of females together with other females, unfamiliar ones, and relo relocation is probably not that big of a deal, but the regrouping can cause fighting. And while we don't think minor fighting is bad, probably severe fighting, especially in hot weather, could be really detrimental, and I think we somebody would need to look at the body condition of these females to make sure that they're not getting injured and not over over stressing themselves. Yep. Yeah. So we talk about by acute stress. That's kind of what I mean, right? Um, and it's a short term. So we know elevated temperatures, poor air quality, overcrowding. That's chronic stress. There. That's that's always bad. And for just about any measure you can think of, that's going to be bad. Mm -hmm. uh, but that acute stress, and I, I can't explain kind of evolutionarily why would acute stress make an animal want to reproduce, um, but it's a fairly predictable uh, occurrence. Okay. Can you discuss, and you've kind of touched on this already, uh, troubleshooting approach uh, when you work for herds that see uh, poor response to hormone intervention? Yeah, I. So diagnostics is key, uh, and so the farms uh, they're, they're going to need some sort of help. Now, whether they can do it themselves or whether they need outside veterinary help or outside diagnostic intervention is up to them. But information is is critical, and so the information when I'm when I'm involved in some of these sorts of case studies where you're trying to look for pubertal problems or whatever it is, poor response to boar exposure, uh, maybe hormone not working very well, what's going on in our animals. There are some options, which is ultrasound, diagnostic intervention, so that's kind of a more specialized thing. Uh, 
blood samples where somebody will send off samples to a diagnostic lab and they're going to simply assay that for progesterone level. And progesterone would be an indication, elevated progesterone from the lab would tell you that this animal has cycled. And then the last one is a slaughter check where some proportion of the animals are sent to a slaughterhouse and somebody examines those reproductive tracts and tell you, yes, this animal is cycling, and of course that would match the high progesterone, um, or it would match the ultrasound things. So you don't need all of those together, but maybe one of those to kind of get you some sort of an insight, match your estrus records together and the age of the animals, tell you what's going on in the herd. So I would reiterate, though, that there are a proportion of yields that aren't worth that. And, and whatever that, I know we've already got money invested into them and you want to get that back. Mm -hmm. But you can put, you know, throwing good money after bad, right? So I can make a lot more guilt cycle and I'll be really unhappy for the rest of their lives that I did so. And so, and you know, what is that proportion? Well, it depends. If you're producing guilts internally, then it depends on how good of a job you did selecting ones with, you know, the poor feet and legs, infantile vulvas, you know, the various things that you can see. If you're purchasing them, then it's how good did that person or supplier do. You know, and depending on that age, and one of the biggest challenges that I see with farms who decide to go to internal gilt production is they don't make enough gilts. And, you know, they've, they've always bought gilts, and they know 90% of them will breed, so they'll breed 110% of what they need, and they probably need 250% of what they need to be born <laughs> if they're going to really be able to select. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. you to get the got to get the right gilts there, and, and um, the severity... You know, is that a big number or is that a small number, right? So, um, <clears throat> if you're anywhere from that five to ten percent range, I mean, that's that's going to be somewhat normal, right? I mean, um, so uh, I understand all of your stuff, but if it's a big number bigger than that, absolutely get yeah. the pros in. Mm -hmm. We have producers systems going to batch farrowing. How does the hormonal intervention work as you try to synchronize uh, your females in your herd? Everybody that goes to batch farrowing will tell you that you need, that you will become familiar with how to use matrix or one of the generic equivalents. So it's an orally active progestin that takes an animal that's already cycling and prevents new follicular growth. And so you feed it for 14 days and no follicles grow. And so during that time, all of the reproductive structures on the ovary have regressed and you now have essentially you know, a non-cycling ovary. And you quit feeding it and they will synchronously grow. And so with your batch farrowing, depends on your frequency, um, but on your gilts, they will, there's no good way to make all gilts come in heat the same day. And so if you're gonna get them into a three week or four week or a five week batch, you will learn how to use matrix to do that. Or one of the generic equivalents. But uh, planning is, is key here, and I, and I think the hormones and the management, know, going in, you, you need to know how to use those. So the challenge, if you don't get the full dose in every day, is that we can have problems with the ovary. So you've given an insufficient signal to the ovary to not grow follicles, and so you can begin to grow cysts. And, and so the problem is that in 14 days, you have to feed it right every day to every pig, and what I said, it's easy to just do everything right every day. <laughs> and every, every consecutive 14-day period I've ever looked at has two weekends in it. 
and that becomes a challenge. So our university farm is on a five-week batch, and we have been for years. And um, if our manager um, doesn't have confidence in the student, he's one person, everything else is student workers. If he doesn't have confidence in who's working, he'll drive that 30 minutes to come in and give that matrix or the generic equivalent himself for both of those weekends and then through the week. And that's when I've watched it in field farms that are unhappy with it. And I say, let's go through everything that we do, and we get in a hurry. And if we're doing through the, you know, into their mouth and, and two or three mils drops out, they're only getting 6.8 mils. Um, you know, it doesn't take much to do it wrong one of those 14 days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my exposure to, to batch farming has been, been somewhat limited, but um, planning is is king, right? So that everybody's got to, they got to have it planned out on when they're doing the weaning. Um, the, the matrix or equivalent will, uh, uh, will work, and, and I've used it uh, at, at times, but it, like you said, it's very, very obvious um, when, when there's been a uh, mistake or somebody didn't get enough to them because that, the, the, the number of gills that feral back, or sorry, that cycle back on time is pretty steady. Um, and uh, if there's any variance into it, that number will change very quickly. Yeah. So I think the breed, the planning is really critical. So the, the I mean, we breed 90% of our pigs on day five or six post last feeding, and and that's pretty consistent when we do it right. Okay? Um, but the the thing with batch farming that's very different from a planning standpoint is you're really busy breeding one week, and you're really busy farrowing one week. And you're depending on what your frequency is. You've got these weird intervals that your labor demands are really variable. And so, some farms find ways that, you know, hey, my people want to work 12-hour shifts for a week, and three-hour shifts other weeks. And some say, I got people that want to work part-time, and they come work, you know, one week, and then they're off two weeks. Or you know, there's different ways to go about it. But you do have to absolutely have to have a plan for that. That's yeah. critical. And then you have to execute the plan. You have to execute it, and it's not—it's not little things, you know. So, um, if we talk about semen coolers, right? And so, if I'm breeding 100 sows in a batch, and now I go to every four weeks, I'm now breeding 400 sows in a batch. I need a lot more capacity for a lot of things that I don't use very often, right? I only use them in a four-week system, one week out of four. And and there's benefits. I mean, the see, we used to talk about it for group size. It was an opportunity for some of our smaller farms to make bigger groups of pigs. And, you know, maybe that was to fill a semi-truck or to fill a larger nursery or finisher or something like that. And um, I think PED made a lot of people think about it from a health strategy that, you know, if we can get a batch farrowing that's something longer than lactation length, then we end up with every farrowing group of pigs comes into a completely clean environment. You know, the only thing there is a sow's. There's no little pigs next door that, so that we always have naive animals in our system. And so... I think that's been a big driver for a lot of our systems today. Okay. Well, a lot of good discussion so far, and uh, good discussion breeds questions. So as you're listening at home, as questions come up, be sure to use the Q&A widget and uh, file your questions. We'll get to those at the end of the presentation. Uh, can you discuss how season-reduced fertility impacts wean to estrus interval? So weaned estrus interval is one of the, the components of fertility, and, and it tends to be delayed. So instead of 90% in four to seven days post-weaning, we might have to go eight or nine or ten days. We have a lot more of those weaned sows that go longer. And um, some of that's just 
um, endochronological, and so the heat itself um, changes some of the blood chemistry. Um, and then a lot of it can do with lactation feed intake. And so if we can find a way to maintain good nutrient intake during lactation, then at weaning she's in you know, good metabolic state and she'll recycle. And if she's, if she's not eating well, and especially our peri ones, which again are more susceptible to heat stress, they're also more susceptible to that delayed wean estrus interval. And so you know, one of the strategies that I know a lot of people have used is they say, we know at this time in our, let's say, parity one females, based on the temperatures we've had and the feed intake, we anticipate a prolonged wean estrus interval. And that's another opportunity where folks will use PG600. And so at weaning, they treat those ones that they think are going to be an issue and they get a lot larger proportion that will cycle within seven days. And the caveat there is that I just tell them, make sure you know when you're going to quit doing that as well, or you'll do that year-round, and that's, there's no reason for that. Yeah, as uh, Tim indicated as well, one of the biggest problems, of course, with uh, delayed weaned estrus interval associated with season is poor feed intake. And while sometimes it's difficult to change the temperature. I mean, you can do the best you can inside the buildings. Um, there's pretty strong evidence to show that overfeeding in late lactation or late gestation can reduce feed intake in lactation. And so that late, late last third of gestation feed intake level can be critical to how much you want them to consume in lactation. And I think that can be especially true for peri-1 females as well. Yeah, that that sow that's nursing that was over-conditioned going into farrowing is making milk from her body, right? She's using body reserves, certainly fat, but also muscle and bone. And then at weaning, you have to completely turn her around from a catabolic to an anabolic state. Whereas if you've got her in good condition and she's making milk from the feed she eats, it's A, more efficient, but it also allows her metabolically to be more prepared to reproduce. I absolutely agree. I mean, one of the, one of the things that we've worked on really hard over the last uh, lots of years, but really gotten better at it, um, we use a, a caliper um, to help us uh, decide body condition so we get the right feed intakes in gestation so that we can get her to go into the farrowing crate in the right body condition. And um, the caliper has taken a lot of the uh, objectiveness out of that because... Um, I'm sure all three of us would, would score a sow differently. Um, and so that in turn keeps that intake up. Um, you know, the other thing you can do is just like what we talked about earlier is keep your, keep your gilts in an area that we're focusing on them, um, closer to the fans, all the things that we can do so that, so that when they, when they come out, we don't see that as bad. It's funny. I, I don't see the, the, uh, the sows running as late. They'll, we'll probably gain a day on uh, wean to service interval on the on the sows, but the gilts can go up yeah. three, four, five days pretty easy. How often do you recommend, or is it recommended, to change the boar exposure if a farm is uh, struggling with that? Uh, and does seasonality affect that? I think if you know those things, if you expect those things are going to come, Waiting for them to resolve is probably the worst thing that you can do. And having some sort of an intervention plan, which is if your numbers go down, 
my approach would be to change something. So exactly like you mentioned, yeah, I'd change, I'd change the bores out. I'd change the exposure level. I might increase the duration of exposure, something along that line. And and I would incrementally try and put more stimuli in uh, rather than waiting for, for the females to to change. But if you've got if you've got kind of guidelines that may change seasonally without saying it's the season. So yeah. for example, we have a robotic bore cart and he's in the cart. We're moving it. And when I'm watching a heat detection and that bore's laying down the cart, he's not giving much pheromonal stimulation. It's time to swap him out. True. And in the summertime he's gonna lay down a lot sooner. And so we're probably gonna swap out our heat check bores more frequently when the weather's hot. Really see that in in pens, right? For exposing gilts, um, I think you need to be proactive with the bores, right? So once once they start to 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 lay down, once they start to slow down, sw- switch them out, right? You need to keep those bores active. They need to breed a cull cell, you know, quite fairly often, right? Once a week or so, keep him keep him really interested, keep him really activated. And that, that'll really help on heat detection, okay. even in the summer heat. Okay. Do you suggest other troubleshooting avenues to go if uh, you're having problems getting the uh, solids and gilts uh, into heat? You know, one of, one of the things that, that, that we do is, is we, use, um, we, use some, we use several bores. We call them soaker bores, right? So um, after, after we're done breeding for the day, we'll, we'll flush that, that hallway full of four, five, six bores, gate them off on each end, let them walk for two to four hours. Right, so you're getting, in my mind, you're getting two things out of that. If any of the of the animals that you bred, you're you're getting more boar exposure on them, um, but the ones that haven't cycled yet, you're getting a good boar exposure on them for tomorrow's for tomorrow's heat check and breed. I've I've had a lot of good luck with that. Okay. Maybe the other thing that I see when we're troubleshooting, and I see it more when we're heat checking in pens, is uh, what we refer to as the refractoriness. And so when we see a gilt or a sow who stands in heat, you know, every muscle in her body tenses. And, and people who lift weights tell me I, I don't. <laughs> um, they tell me that you can only sustain that sort of stuff for so long. And, and that pig is going to be several minutes. It might be five. It might be 10 or 15 for a sow. And so when we're heat checking pens of gilts and we heat check this pen, and then we heat check this pen, and we heat check this pen, and, and those gilts down, down the line have, have heard that boar and they've smelled that boar, and they've already stood. We didn't detect it. We get there and we say, well, she's kind of acting like it, but we're not going to call this estrus. Mm-hmm. And that's true in stalls as well. You know, we're, you know, when I started at Missouri, we saw a lot of farms, you know, the heat check pens were in the middle. And it made a lot of sense from a labor. They could come from any direction. But in the summertime, when tunnel ventilation kicks on, the air is all coming one direction. And so those sows downwind of that heat check pen were stimulated all day long. And so we run them up, and they go, well, they're just not standing. And it's because they're exhausted that, you know, they've got the lactic acid built up in their muscles. And, and so typically we put our heat check bores now with the exhaust fan. Yep. And we say, well, that's going to hurt sperm quality. And you say, that's great. You know, he's, <laughs> he may be vasectomized. It doesn't matter. And we just want that to be a, a novel experience. We want that pheromone in particular to be novel experience when we're trying to detect estrus. How big a role does nutrition play? in uh, reproductive behavior and performance? From a weaned sow standpoint, uh, 
it's, it's easy to see uh, in that if the sows that are nursing large litters, uh, if, they, if they can't eat enough food, um, especially the younger parity ones, uh, they'll, they'll lose a lot of weight, they'll lose a bloody body condition by the time of weaning. Uh, they will not return with, and be bred within seven days after weaning their litter. So we've known that, and industry has been seeing that uh, for quite a, a period of time. Combine that with hot temperatures, it's very difficult to get these sows to consume all the feed that they would consume uh, in hot weather. On the pig side, uh, it doesn't seem like, at least in this country, we have a big problem with growth rate and gilts. Um, I think some of the gilts, modern genetic gilts today, have the capability of growing 800 grams per day. The problem growth rates in gilts is less than 600 grams per day. So that would be a slow-growing gilt. Here might be more normal for a tropical place like Thailand or Vietnam. That's where they can't get feed consumption. But what we've been seeing in North America, especially in northern parts of the United States, is we see seven, 800 grams per day growth rate in gilts. And I'll mention maybe the big problem is when we transition the gilts from pens into stalls, maybe now all of a sudden we're going to limit their feed maybe when we shouldn't be. How much we've got had some bad growing season years for uh, corn crop around the U.S., so mycotoxins have come into play. How big a impact does feed quality play in the produ- reproductive measures? Toxins. Mycotoxins and contaminants have been a concern from industry for a long time, and especially throughout all different parts of the world uh, in, in areas. But um, in, in the U.S., corn, uh, mycotoxins that have estrogen, estrogen-like activity are a concern. Uh, they give symptoms. They give symptoms similar to fertility, uh, cause vulva swelling. But more, more likely than that, they are causing reproductive problems. They're not true fertility enhancers. Uh, and, uh, and those toxins with estrogen-like activity can wind up concentrated in distiller dried grains. Uh, uh, there's even some estrogenic compounds, I believe, in soy, soy as well. So when these things start, maybe start getting additive, uh, there's perhaps things that should be getting tested, like the corn or their different feed. And I know there's different additives that binders that people can put in as well. Yeah, on the, on the production end, I'm, you know, some of the alarm bells that, that we see is, you know, you, you see a few aborts that are not health-related, right? You know, um, the red swollen vulvas, that's, that's a biggie, especially out in the, in the gilts. Because they, you you know they're not in heat, but they're all they're all swelled up. So um, those those kind of things get us to test and feed pretty quickly. Just to go back and check on it. So we talked about nutrition. You know, there's things that we can do to get feed into wean sows um, from the time they wean until the time they breed, right? So we can put water nipples up in the crates, right? You know, so the trough doesn't have to flush out with water. Uh, we can put, you know, we can we make sure they're on full feed. You know, we'll have sows eating eight to 10 pounds a day uh, from, from, from weaning to breeding. Are you feeding sows any different based on body condition out of uh, weaning? 
No, everybody's on full feet, whether she's whether she's large or not. Everybody's on full feed until they breed, um, you know, and then and then um, five days after they breed, then then we adjust them to whatever their body condition is. You, you talked about summer and, and semen. Um, Think about where you got your semen cooler. I, I actually know of a farm uh, that we ran into some conception rate problems. Uh, we found the semen cooler on that farm sitting in a, um, I'm going to call it a storage room that had no cooling. Right? So it, it was not, uh, the, the semen cooler couldn't keep up, yeah. right? You know, so in the afternoons, it was letting the semen get too warm. So we've seen a lot of impacts out of that. We're talking about how to keep the sows cool, low stress, labor times, and all that. And you're right. I mean, if the semen is the, is the substance that's getting heat stressed, you're... Your conception rates, litter sizes uh, are doomed um, from that standpoint. And so that's a really low-hanging fruit to, yep. to fix. Right. How much time is too long for it to be exposed to just the room environment? We try to take out no more than 30, 30 doses at a time. Um, and we, we try really hard to get it lined out to where we use it all up so we don't have to take it back out of the coolers and put it back into the main semen cooler. Mm -hmm. Well, that concludes our great discussion today. Uh, we will now go to the question and answer session from our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Driven by Prevention podcast. Please subscribe for future episodes from Merck Animal Health and learn more about Merck Animal Health at drivenbyprevention.com.